Good morning. If you did not grow up with older siblings, I don't know that you can fully understand the experience of wanting the approval or affirmation of your older siblings. And even in all the conflict and the name calling and all the stuff, you know, of having siblings, there's still that desire in a younger sibling to want to be approved. Uh, I grew up with two older brothers. My oldest brother, Greg, was eight years older than me, which means until he was 16, he was a lifetime older than me, right? Like there was a big disconnect there. But my brother, Mark, the one who's in between us, the the middle brother, uh, I wanted his affirmation so bad when I was growing up. I wanted so bad for him to be proud of me. And and I remember distinctly a story um, of going to my first ever summer camp. Very conservative and traditional and pretty strict summer camp. But uh, senior high and middle school went together. So I was in seventh grade. He was in 11th grade. Uh, he was 17 years old and was always super popular. And he always had this thing for fashion. So he was like the coolest dressed and whatever. And I wanted so bad to hang out with his friend group. And he wanted so bad for me not to hang out with his friend group. And so we spent most of that week at summer camp doing what siblings do, and that is like he spent uh, that time intentionally avoiding wherever the middle schoolers were, right? And and we really did kind of keep our distance until the last day. We we came up to the last line of the last service, and I told you it's old school, right? So back then at summer camp, you still kind of dressed up for the evening services, even though it was 7 million degrees and you hadn't bathed in three days. And so I did kind of this the stereotypical middle school boy thing all of my clothes were dirty i had no clone, uh, clean clothes left but camp wasn't over <laughs> we have a problem very smelly problem and so i went to mark was like dude i have no clothes for the last night's service whatever and because he was such a fashion guy he had plenty of clothes he had brought enough clothes for like a month you know and uh and he let me borrow his cool clothes And I can remember like it was yesterday. The year was 1990. (laughs) Actually. So he lets me borrow his white dress pants that are kind of puffy but taper at the ankle. Come on. So this wasn't when Miami Vice was like retro. It was actually cool, right? I'm talking like Don Johnson would have wore these pants. This kind of Hawaii cut shirt that was a white background with neon pink and turquoise and black kind of spots on it. I'm telling you, like, this is what Don Johnson would have been buried in. You know, like, it, it was awesome. And and so he's, he lets me borrow this outfit, right? And I will tell you, I've never quite walked that way in my life. <laughs> I'm walking to the evening service. What's up, ladies? <laughs> my seventh grade confidence was really high. My seventh grade confidence was so high that I went over and sat before the service began near Mark and his friends. As a matter of fact, it was pews, right? I'm kind of like sprawled on the pew, like posing on the pew, talking to his friends. I have no idea where where my seventh grade little buddies were. They're probably like, where'd Doug go? I don't know. I'm hanging out with his friends. And, and, And part of the reason this story is so clear in my memory is... I said something that a typical brothers would say to each other, you know, it's probably something sarcastic or kind of cracking on him. And his friends laughed. And it was like catnip, man. Like, 
I got a laugh out of the 17-year-olds. Job description accepted. Here we go. I was working for the next laugh. So I just kept going further, and I guess the confidence my timing was on. I was getting all kinds of chuckles, man. Not from Mark so much. He wasn't really laughing, but his friends were. And I just kind of kept going and kept going. And finally, he'd had enough. And he said, dude. And he said two words that all of us who have older siblings can probably recognize. Grow up. That's what he said. Grow up. And the way I was kind of leaning on the pew... I was able to make it look like I kind of levitated, and I just instantly, as soon as he said grow up, I went, I'm now 17. <laughs> Which isn't that funny, but somehow in the moment, it got Mark to crack. He started laughing. It got him. And I pulled a John Elway. I'm retiring. I just walked away. I was like, go step away on a win. Those of you, John Elway played football. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm stepping away after the victory, and that's how that story ended. But that's such a strange thing to say to somebody. Grow up. Because the thing is, in seventh grade, I really wished it was that simple. Like, I wanted so bad to be able to go, I'm now 17. I wanted it more than anything. And, and when I at 45 years old now, look back at my life's journey. I've spent so much of my story that God's been writing wanting to grow up, wanting to be in the next chapter. Paul David Tripp said we get stuck in our own autobiographies. We're so busy writing the chapter that we're headed towards or maybe even trying to rewrite the chapter we've already left. And we find ourselves stuck in the story where we are, we actually can't just grow up. And we spend our elementary years wanting so bad to be in middle school. And we get to middle school, and we want so bad to be in high school. When we get to high school, we want so bad to be a senior. And we're a senior, we want so bad to get to college. And 15 minutes into college, we want so bad to get out of college. And then we want so bad to graduate. And then we graduate. And then we so bad want like the real job, whatever the thing is that we're chasing. And then we so bad want to meet the person, and we so bad want to get married, we so bad want to buy the house, we so bad want to have kids, and then we have kids, and we so bad want to sleep. And then we want so bad for them to start walking, and then they do, and we want so bad to turn the clock back, because we're like, where are they, and what, where did they fall? And then we find ourselves, for those of you who've, who've lived some life, you find yourself no longer wanting to grow up. You kind of want to grow back. I mean, how can I slow this down? Life's moving so fast. And regardless of whether the pace, we want it to be quicker or slower, so often we just find ourselves in a moment where we feel stuck. And the problem with that is, ever since we got evicted from the Garden of Eden, as the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we resent stuckness. We resent feeling trapped. As a matter of fact, so many of the conversations that, that I have in my office have the language of feeling stuck. 
I feel stuck in this job. I feel stuck in our financial situation. I feel stuck in this battle with an addiction. I feel stuck in a marriage that's broken. I feel stuck in my relationship with a kid that's that's broken. Or I feel stuck in this relationship with an extended family member or friend. I feel stuck in aloneness. I feel stuck. And we naturally resent that. And I would submit to you this morning... I think there's a holy side to that resentment. Maybe that that dislike of feeling stuck is actually a holy call from God to a life of next steps. Please grab your Bible if you would this morning. If you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you, and we're going to invite you to hold it up in the air and say a creed and prayer together before we dive in. It's our tradition here, and we invite you to join in it with us this morning. Let's hold them up, and let's say this together. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke. We never really grow out of wanting to grow up. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. As you're turning to the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be in chapter 2. I just want to tell you that there's this um, there's this part of the story God's been writing in, in my life that I'm really excited to get to share with you this morning. I'm going to share what I think is some really simple things. This morning might feel uh, teachier than preachier this morning, but my personal story took a dramatic turn 11 and a half years ago when my brother Mark took his life. It's interesting. He's been gone 11 and a half years. I, I still want his approval. But as, as, as we lost him, he was a pastor at the time. And all of a sudden, conversations started happening between me and other pastors who were in really dark places. And because of what we walked through with the loss of my brother. My phone just started ringing and strangers I'd never met said, hey, I heard your story. And um, my brother's death went pretty viral, kind of before viral was a thing. And as these conversations started, God began to grow a new perspective of of the core, like the the heart of the Christian life in a way that's just kind of been unfolding and um, and, and it's strange. Now I, I travel and speak a lot during the week to groups of pastors or even to teenagers about a biblical view of mental health stuff. And what I want to finally get to share with you this morning for the first time is, is where I start all of those conversations with all those other people that I talk to. A, a, a perspective that's been birthed out of the hardest thing, the hardest goodbye I've ever had to say. And I have, I've come to this conclusion that, that we rush, those of us who've been in the church for a while, we rush past the simple because we think it's like elementary and maybe we need to revisit it. Here's a simple question that I think isn't all that simple. What does it really look like to live like Jesus? Like what does it mean? Practically. Now if you're new to Christianity, let me give some context to that question. It, 
might not seem as significant as it actually is. You might not know this, but what we're called to do as Christians is follow Jesus, not just believe in him. I know the language of a faith system is that faith is belief, right? But Jesus didn't say, believe in me. He said, follow me, which begins with a step of faith. But it's it's this followership. It's matter of fact, the word Christian literally is the implication that we are many Jesuses, right? It, it was meant actually as an insult. It, it was it was like the I shall call him mini me. Like it was this <laughs> insult of you're these little mimickers of the Christ, right? What does it mean to really live like Jesus? And and man, when I when I was in the um in, in high school, the, the WWJD bracelets were the thing, right? If an athlete accidentally wore one of those athletes, you were like, clearly they should be a pastor, right? You know, WWJD, right? What, what would Jesus do? That, that kind of actually came out of a book that was written uh, in, I believe, the late 1800s. Uh, Charles M. Sheldon wrote a book called In His Steps. And sometimes we ask the question, what would Jesus do? But we, we separate that question from the steps of Jesus. Following in his steps is biblical language. What would Jesus do is not actually biblical language. Because here's the answer. What would Jesus do? Walk on water and be perfect. Uh-oh. Right? Now some of you who are the cook in the house, you feel like you fed 5,000 people over the holidays. But that's not really what we do. I gotta be honest, when I look at my life, it's not looked much like what I read about Jesus at all. Many of you in this room, we've done funerals together for people that you cared about very much. I've never raised one of them from the dead. We've, a lot of us in this room, sat in a bunch of hospitals, waiting rooms. I've never healed the sick. You know, Jesus began his ministry having a conversation with the devil. And there have been days it felt like I did, but I actually never have. My life doesn't look much like his. What does it mean to to live like Jesus on a Tuesday? One of my favorite authors uses that phrase all the time. On a Tuesday. You say, what's special about a Tuesday? Nothing. That's the point. On just a regular, ordinary day. What's it look like to live like Jesus? Um... When we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the Gospels, we, we really, if, if you take the major majority of the stories told in the Gospels, they only make up about 50 days of the life of Jesus. 50. And he lived to be over 33. As a matter of fact, 25% of the Gospels are the last seven days of his life on earth for the crucifixion. We've got a good bit of information about his birth, actually not a ton, but a good bit of information about his birth and prophecies about his birth. And for us today, we actually have a whole lot of information about his birth that people have written in song. Some of it's not necessarily theologically accurate, (laughs) but we've got these songs and stories told and we just celebrated Christmas. So we we know about his birth and then we know a lot about his ministry at age 30-ish. We have a good bit of information about his death and, praise God, his resurrection. But the reality is we know more about his future life that hasn't happened yet than we do his actual life that already happened. Ever thought about that? 
Like from his birth to his ministry, there's 30 years that would actually answer for normal people. What does it look like to live like Jesus on a Tuesday? And, and for three decades, the son of God was living in the house and nobody took notes. Apparently, he didn't do anything worth writing down. We have one story from his childhood. Age 12, he runs away from his parents. And when confronted by them, he calls his Jewish mother woman. I don't want to live like that. What does it mean? We ask ourselves, what does it mean to live like Jesus? And there's one verse. It's actually at the tail end of the Christmas story. There's one verse that summarizes the 30 years of Tuesdays that I think we we can circle back to. Don't rush past this. Don't think of this as juvenile. This is a text that I believe needs to grow up in our minds and our hearts. Needs to mature with us. Because the verse we're going to look at this morning is a verse I memorized as a child. And I remember little Sunday school classes where they taught about this verse as though it was for children. And so I want you to think of 27-year-old Jesus, not 11-year-old Jesus. When we read these words, Luke chapter 2, verse 52. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's not one of those moments where it's the male form of man. That means humankind, humanity. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I want us to park on this verse together this morning. I want to share with you how this verse has grown up in my heart the last 11 and a half years. Um, I'm going to say something right now that those of you who've been listening to me preach for a long time, you probably are going to mouth this sentence with me. I say this a lot. You do not have to have a familiar understanding of biblical Hebrew in the Old Testament or biblical Greek in the New Testament to be able to understand the Bible. And so anytime we talk about the original languages in Hebrew or in Greek, that's not meant to make you feel distanced as a student of the word. It's not necessary for you to submit to the word to have to know those languages. And we live in an amazing day where there's more resources to help us with that understanding. Uh, BibleStudyTools.com, BlueLetterBible.com. My favorite is Bible Hub. Or if you've got money, you can purchase uh, a subscription uh, to Logos, which is a phenomenal resource library. But this is one of those Greek words that helps us understand a beautiful picture. A lot of these Bible words are picture words. The word increased here that describes not the childhood, but the growth and life of Jesus. The word increased here is a Greek word called prokopto. It's a cool word. It's a word that means to grow, to go forward, to advance, to make progress. Or, my favorite, to cut away forward. There's something so masculine about holding a heavy sword. I am not left-handed. One Princess Bride fan. He's just got it? Sorry. Um... 
to cut a way forward is, is the picture painted by Procopto of a guide clearing the brushwood on the path so that there can be progress. The reason I think that's an important picture, there's several reasons I think that's an, one of the first reasons I think that's an important picture is it shows the fact that moving forward in life takes some sweat equity. Like I, th- I think as a people, we want everything to come to us, right? We're like, can I just do a door dash of my sanctification, please? Can I Uber Eats freedom in Jesus? And the reality is, man, there's, there's a lot of brush that we've got to clear. Jesus spent his life clearing obstacles. Now, he did so in a very different way than we did. Because there's two different kinds of obstacles. There's the obstacles outside of me. And for the rest of us, there's the obstacles inside of us. Jesus didn't have to clear those obstacles because he was holy and pure and righteous and without sin. Make no mistake. But because we are broken people, doing life with broken people, in a broken world, there's a lot of debris. Legalism or performanceism or perfectionism is always looking at the end of the path and saying, you better be there in every area of your life. And that's actually not the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus is clear the next obstacle in front of you to take the next step on the journey. Jesus prokoptoed. He cleared the brush to take the next step in front of him in wisdom, stature, favor with God, and man. That's what it means to he increased. This sword's going to be here next week. It really is more for what we're going to discuss next week because this really, this week's sort of just an introduction to where we're going to head next week. But we'll revisit that sword next week to increase Let me paint one more picture that's a little less uh, swordish. Not a word. The word prokopto is only used six times in the New Testament. Three times it's used to talk about evil becoming obstacles on the path. That evil advanced to choke out the progress. One time it's used by the Apostle Paul to describe his efforts to try to be perfect. He said that he prokoptoed in the law, and then Jesus set him free in grace. (laughs) He's trying so hard to clear obstacles that became bondage. It's used positively here to describe Jesus' growth. It's only used positively one other time, and here's the picture. It's used to describe the progress of the dawn to break way through the night sky to begin a new morning. What a beautiful picture of, I think, the invitation of the Spirit of God for you as we're starting a new year. I think there's a dawn of something God wants to do in some people's life today that's pictured in this idea of taking the next step. Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and man. So back to our question. What does it mean to live like Jesus. 
What's it look like? What does it mean to be Christ-like on a Tuesday? Here's the answer. Keep taking the next steps. What's the next step? Take that one and then keep taking it. So, again, I know it's a little teachy, but hang with me here. That word prokopto is used in an ongoing sense. Jesus did not prokopto. He didn't. What it means is he advanced, and then he advanced, and then he advanced. He just took the next step. That is the most beautiful picture of the Christian life I think we could possibly paint. None of us are at the end of the journey. None of us have arrived. P.S. If you think you've arrived, I'd like to introduce you to your next obstacle. We're just all on a journey. That's the language Jesus used. When Jesus talked about how we enter the kingdom of heaven, he used the language of a path. He said, there's this really broad path. It does not have many obstacles. It's really easy to find. Most people find it. But it does not lead to life. It leads to destruction. See, there's a narrow and difficult path, and very few find it. It's the path that leads to life. It's easier to ignore our obstacles or to run from them or to let them defeat us. My favorite verse, Psalm 16, verse 11 David said, you make known to me the path of life. This, this whole idea of a journey, this whole idea of taking the next steps. Jesus is not calling you this morning to just settle in your feelings of stuckness. And if you've been in church for a while, you might be objecting in your mind. But what about contentment? Isn't contentment great gain? No, that is not what the scripture says. First Timothy chapter six, verse six says godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness living like God in the flesh lived, which means I'm content for what God has done in my life. And I'm really hungry to see what he does next. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And I just think some of us have. I mentioned this last week. I just constantly hear from people I love so much. We're speaking a language of defeat. I'm stuck. I got nowhere to go. I give up. And I believe we need some holy discontent among the people of God today. Like we need some hunger for what's next. Not what's at the end of the road, not perfection. Don't. As a matter of fact, come back to our verse. Again, I want to circle in on, on one specific word before we set, before we go any further or set any more of a tone. It's the word favor. I want you to see the word favor. That word favor is another one of those really important words. That word is used a lot in the scriptures. Matter of fact, it's used, uh, 266 times. Of those 266 times, 222 of them, it's actually translated grace. So this isn't my effort to clear the the debris. This isn't my work to be a better version of me. No, no, no. That's the law or some self-help, self-centered gospel. Me growing in the next step is me acknowledging what the obstacle is and surrendering to the work of the Spirit to do the work of clearing the obstacle. As a matter of fact, the first step on this journey 
is acknowledging these obstacles are too big for me and I've not arrived. And it's placing faith in the one who's gone before. See, he removed the obstacles by going to the cross and raising from the dead. And so now we just take the next step, trusting he's going to clear the next obstacle. That's the invitation into a a life of holistic perspective of wellness. We don't need a change of scenery. We need a change of pace. The therapists call it escapism. Conversationally, we call it the seven-year itch or a midlife crisis or a bald guy in a sports car, whatever we call it. And, and we're trying to change the scenery. We're trying to change the, the environment. But God's trying to grow us to move forward, to take the next step. Instead of, instead of running from the obstacle, let's just see what God might do with that thing. Like, let's stop running from the obstacles. Let's see how God's going to remove it in his grace. So here's where we've been heading for this morning. I'm going to ask you, if you're not a note taker, I'm going to ask you to be one for just a couple minutes. Please get out a phone, tablet. If you're a journaler, you've already got your journal out. If you don't have a a note thing on your phone, send yourself a text or send yourself an email because I'm going to ask you to participate with me in something. And so I'm I'm encouraging every person in this room to not just be a spectator or a listener right now. I'm asking you to participate with me for a minute. Let's do a little examination here together with this idea. Everybody get something you can jot some stuff down. We're going to look back at this verse again, and I'm going to ask you to write down just a couple words that we're then going to circle back to. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is this has become a rubric for me of what holistic growth looks like, of what holistic health looks like. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. Thinking health. Thinking health. That is his growth in wisdom. I would call that mental health, but that phrase has become so convoluted now. We talk about mental health as though this is mental stuff and it's actually holistic stuff. And so thinking health. And if if that doesn't make sense to you, here's how I want to ask that. Am I filling my mind with healthy things? I constantly talk to people who tell me we've become experts in our generation at feeling our feelings. But we're still in kindergarten with thinking our thinkings. People will tell me, I just can't get my head right. And it's like, well, tell me what you're doing to fill your mind when you're not at work or at school. And it's like, well, I'm just numbing myself on entertainment that is godless. Here's the deal. I, I, I have nothing. I love watching a movie. I, I'll watch a poorly done movie and enjoy it. Like, I've got a really low bar for entertainment. Uh, so I'm, I'm not trying to be legal. But if that's all we're filling our mind with, if we never fill our mind with healthy things, we're probably not going to think healthy things. So thinking health. How are we doing with our thinking health? Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, physical health. I want to say some things here in regards to physical health that in no way, shape, or form are meant to imply that I've got this down and I'm perfect or that I'm trying to shame you for this. 
as Americans, we continue to consume things that are terrible for our bodies and then complain about our feelings. When the reality is, for some of us, the majority of our feelings are because of how we are treating the temple of God. For some of us, if I constantly fill myself with things that have a high and then a crash, and then I'm like, I feel depressed. Well, yeah. If I'm constantly filling my body with things that harm me, and then I go, I just don't think my heart's in good health. Well, yeah. Most of us have jobs that keep us very, very still, and that's not how God designed us to live. And that's not said to be shaming at anybody. But maybe we're not so much just feeling the feelings we feel. We're in need of examining, is there an obstacle to my way of life I need to address? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the work of grace, how's my physical health? How am I doing? Many of us stare at a blue light screen until the moment we go to sleep and we don't understand why we don't rest well. That's a physical behavior problem. We are being unkind to our brains and then mad at it when it doesn't let us rest. And then most of us wake up and the first thing we do is get on our phones and see what happened for the three minutes we were asleep. That, that is a, that's not psychological. That's physiological. That's being unkind to my body. Jesus took the next step in his thinking health, the next step in his physical health. And I don't understand this, but Jesus took the next steps in his spiritual health. How does God grow in favor with God? I don't know. Maybe he just did it for us. This, that beautiful idea of, of just clearing the next obstacle, there's so much freedom to, to just put to death perfectionism and pharisaical performanceism and people-pleasing and, man, where are you at spiritually? I'm just taking my next step. You take yours. There's so much freedom in that. Like, how great is that? I'm busy trying to remove my own obstacles. I don't have time to pay attention and judge yours. Matter of fact, maybe that judgment's the biggest obstacle I have today. There's so much freedom in that. Just the next step. Where is that? By the way, I want to say to the more mature Christians in the room, and that journey doesn't end until we've been fully conformed to the image of his beloved son. You're not done moving down the road. Your story's not over. There's still room for you to grow. Still territory for you to take in the grace of Jesus. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and with man. That is our relational health. Our relational health. Well, what about with difficult people, especially them? Well, what about the people closest to me? Yep. What about the people I don't even know that well? Yep. How's your relationships? With whatever they are. How are we doing? If it's true... That we cannot love God and not love those who bear his image. How are we doing at that? It's just a healthy question. It's not a shaming question. Because by the way, P.S., none of us are killing it. Anybody else have social media? (laughs) We're doing a great job at relationships in 2023. We're eight days into this thing and it's already a show. Like, let's be honest. Once you write one more down... The idea of favor with man, I believe, also absolutely reflects emotional health, which I think is a far healthier phrase than mental health, by the way. All emotional health 
falls into the category of my relationship with others or my relationship with me. Like that, that is relational. It's either me dealing with my own struggles or dealing with how someone else's hurts have written on me. Emotional health is relational. The two can't be separated from one another. That holistic viewpoint over the last several years has become lenses that I can't help but see all of life. It's a filter through which I hear all conversations. And this has become kind of a a non-stop evaluation of what's today's step. Or this year's step. Or this season of life's step. If God's in the business of removing obstacles, I really want to slow down long enough to pay attention to what he's up to. Does that make sense? I want to add one more category for you. But you get to come up with it. Because often the thing that we think is the biggest pain is, is just the area God's up to something in our life. So today, I would ask you, how's your marriage health? Or how's your family dynamic health? Or how's your occupational health? How you doing with your job? How's your financial health? It's such a big indicator of how our soul is really doing. If you don't know what to write there, and there's not something that's rushing to the forefront of your mind, you can borrow financial health from me. Because for most people I know, that's a pretty tender and responsive area. This is a snapshot of, I believe, living a life of next steps. I'm trying to help the people that I'm closest to become ninjas and paying attention to these things. What's God up to in these areas? And so I'm going to ask you to do something with me this morning. I'm going to ask that we right here in this space, if you're worshiping with us uh, online, we welcome you to participate in this with us. I want to ask a couple questions of this snapshot. And here's the first question for every person in this room and anybody who's watching this online. Question number one, have you taken the first step of the next steps? Are you walking into this new year with the most confidence a human being can have that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You've stood at the end of this journey and seen, I need a savior. That's the first step. Do you know for sure you've taken that step? Not think so, not hope so, and not maybe so. Do you know that you've taken the first step? And here's the deal. And for those who are in this room, we're, we're going to sing a song in just a minute, a beautiful hymn of the faith. And while we do, there's going to be some folks in the prayer room in the back. We'd love to have that conversation with you before you go to the parking lot today. If that feels really intimidating and uncomfortable to you, then just come see me and say, hey, can we have coffee sometime? Can we go to lunch sometime? Whatever. You can see any of the pastoral staff, any of the community group leaders, anybody that looks like they have a pulse, man, just talk to us. Because this question is everything to us. For those of you who aren't present in the room, you can text PrayFW to 94000 and just put first step. That's all you got to say. We'd love to come alongside wherever you're at in that journey. If you believe you've taken the first step, then I'm asking every person in this room to go back to your list and let's examine next steps. Right now, I want you to take 60 seconds, and I want you to to examine that list and ask yourself, how am I doing? 
And then I want you to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 is horrid. You're probably not a 1. 10 is Jesus. You're probably not a 10. How am I doing? I mean, you might be a 10. Okay, I'll stop. Uh, How am I doing in these areas on a scale of 1 to 10? How am I doing? Right now, I want you to right now write a number down. I want you to overthink it. If you overthink it, your flesh is probably getting away. Right now, 60 seconds. I want you to write down, how, how do I think I'm doing on a scale of 1 to 10? Right now, I want you to put a number by there without overthinking it. This is a growth in grace. Don't be hard on yourself. There's two kinds of people in this room. Those are going to score themselves really low, and so those are going to score themselves really high. Try to be realistic about this. How you doing? Keep that list handy because there's one more step. Not to ever use the word step, but there's another step. And here's the last thing I'm going to ask you to do. This one I'm not going to ask you to do here or now. I'm going to ask you to find a quiet place somewhere in the next 24 or 48 hours where you think about this question. What would it look like to take the next step in these areas? What is one thing, one tangible, simple next step I can take in these areas? And I want to be careful here. Don't don't put the end of the journey. This isn't goal setting. Lose 75 pounds. That's not the next step. Okay. Like what, what's just the next step? What would that look like? And it can be as normal and as practical as eat cleaner and greener. Something, like what, whatever. What would just the next step? And the reason I'm going to ask you to not do this here and to take this home is this one I'm going to ask you to ask the person who actually clears the debris from the path to give you his insight in this. Because I don't know about you, a lot of the times I've charted, charted my own course, it's not been what the Father intended for me. I'm trying to... <laughs> trying to get better at slowing down and asking him for directions. And so I I just want to encourage you, would, would you take a few minutes in the next two days and just say, Father, what would this look like? I will tell you that there's a church family next step I'm asking all of us to take together. But I'll tell you about it next Sunday. It's a step that I really wanted us to take Back in that year that we all whisper with fear and trepidation, 2020, that plan has been delayed and delayed and delayed. And I'm thrilled to finally share this idea with you next Sunday. And so please come back ready to take the next step together. I I think there's a family step that, that I feel really strongly that the Lord is inviting us to. And so, um, Prepare your heart in that for now. I'm going to say one more thing and then we're going to be done today. If as you examine these areas, you find one that's a really low discouraging number or a profound feeling of stuckness, I want you to hear my heart right now. You are not alone on this path. You aren't the pioneer who clears the brushwood. We already have one of those. His name is Jesus. And he's invited you into a family. 
And so I am asking you, please, would you reach out and say, hey, can we have a conversation? I'm not in a great place in one of these areas, and I feel pretty alone in it. You don't have to reach out to me, but I'm here for you. If there's a a person who loves Jesus and has wisdom in your life, reach out to, to somebody, anybody. Because we'd love to walk with you in this. You're not alone in this. If you walk out of here looking at this list feeling beat up, then you've not heard my heart in this. We're here together to see what God's up to because he's in the business of next steps. And he's really good at it. And I just think we've been stuck for like three years. Let's go. Let's go. Like He didn't raise from the dead so we could stand still on this path. Let's go.